If you've been following along with us, you'll know that we've been in the book of Daniel and we've been thinking about in the crisis, what it means to be the people of God living in crisis. We began that series by seeing how Daniel and his friends were taken captive from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. They were foreigners and exiles in a strange place. They were cream of the crop. They were the intellectual elite and they were taken from what they knew to be familiar and dumped in this unfamiliar place. They took on new names that were given to them. They had to learn a new language and enroll in a new education system. Uh, They uh, everything was unfamiliar. They were in enemy territory, and King Nebuchadnezzar was the authority. Daniel refused to eat the king's food and uh, instead just ate water or drank water and ate vegetables. And, and he, he took a stand in order to say, I'm different. I, I am from Jerusalem, not from Babylon. And Daniel and his friends took a stand, and uh, it, it made a difference, obviously. Then in, in chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he's perplexing to him and he gets all the you know the wise guys of Babylon to try and interpret it for him and he can't figure it out and Daniel gives an interpretation and says this dream of this statue that you see of gold and precious metals and looks powerful intimidating is, is about different succeeding kingdoms but it has a feet of clay and it's going to topple it can't last and so that's where we get uh, to in chapter two then in chapter three the first part of it which we won't read this morning is is when Nebuchadnezzar sets up this incredible statue of gold, towering, powerful statue that, that's impressive. And, and just, he, he invites everyone to come to the commissioning service for this statue that's supposed to represent his own power and authority, that's supposed to represent how intimidating and incredible he is. And actually, what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar ends up being humiliated ever seen those uh, compilations of, of boxers who uh, are really on top in a fight and they drop their, their gloves and they start goading their opponent. And they have their, their fists either side and they're dancing about in the ring because they're well on top. And then all of a sudden the person who is really losing swings one punch and knocks out the cocky boxer and we all love it. It's that kind of situation. I remember being in, in school one time and my teacher was trying to exert authority, science teacher, who, someone in my class had melted a big pen over a Bunsen burner. He was like melting this pen over the Bunsen burner. And he, he was really cross about the gases that were being emitted from this uh, melting plastic. And, and the teacher was furious and he said, you might want to damage your tiny wee brain, but I don't want to damage my tiny, my brain. <laughs> the whole class erupted in laughter. He was trying to exert his authority. He raised his voice, he got furious, but it only served to exaggerate the humiliation. And Really, what we see in Daniel chapter 3 is King Nebuchadnezzar getting furious, trying to exert his authority, trying to appear intimidating and proud and huge, and actually he just humiliates himself. There were large, large crowds, got like larger than the crowds at Premark, were gathered were gathered to this commissioning service and they were explained to that they, when they heard the music, they needed to fall down and, and worship the golden statue that I have set up over and over again. You'll see those words in Daniel chapter three that I have set up, King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and he was furious because as we're about to see, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would not bow to the statue. They would only worship the Lord God. We're going to begin reading in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16. The words will be on the screen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. We end there giving thanks to God for his word and, and as Shane said, how God continues to speak to us today. A number of years ago, an Australian woman who was at that time the oldest woman in the world, 107 years old, was asked to share some wisdom from her years. And she said, well, one of the things about being my age is you don't have to think about peer pressure. It's not really a problem anymore. But for the rest of us, peer pressure is a big deal. We feel the crushing weight of other people's expectations or opinions on us all the time. And it was no different for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everyone else was bowing down. And they decided they would not do that. They knew it would bring unpleasant consequences. They knew that the furnace was there. It was there as a warning. You better do this or else. And they said, our God who is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king, He's able to do it. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God was the hope of his people. That's what we want to think of all. Think about, first of all, in verse 18. God is the hope of his people. You see that their hope was not tied to the outcome of their circumstances. 
Their God would still be God even if they were not rescued from the flames. Did they believe he was capable of rescue? Yes, of course they did. He's able to save us. They believed that he would, but they said, even if he doesn't, this, this is not all riding on how my life unfolds. They wanted him to deliver them. They believed he could deliver them, but they knew that God's character was not to be questioned if their circumstances didn't unfold in the way that they dictated. They had an understanding of the uniqueness of God's character, that God doesn't change, and he will not be different if their circumstances are different. He will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have a cherry blossom tree in our front garden, and just recently it went into bloom, and there's pink petals, and it looks really good. But there was a bit of wind yesterday, and you know this is going. That all It's all over the driveway. It's all over the grass. And those pretty petals that were up high and looked powerful and beautiful and majestic are now you know, being trampled underfoot and all across my green grass and dandelions and daisies and everything else that's in my front garden, right? And we sing, don't we? We, about our human nature, we blossom. We blossom. That, that's, that's who we are. We blossom and flourish like leaves on a tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. There's something about the nature and character of God that is unchanging. You've maybe heard it said, I, I know I definitely have heard it said, that the only, only place you can't expect change is from a vending machine. Everywhere else you can expect to get change. You can expect there will be change. Only God is changeless. And what this means for our human relationships is that we've got to accept that we are not the finished article. You and I are not the finished article. You, you want to believe that you're unchanging. You want to believe that you can say one thing and stand over it for the rest of your life. But look back at photographs. You are changing. You are aging. I was, getting, I was in the queue at the SSE for my vaccine and I was in that age category. You know, it was my age category. And I'm looking around thinking, everyone else looks really old. <laughs> I was like mentioning my underlying medical conditions that meant that I was, you know, this is why I should be here. I'm not the same age as you guys. Surely I'm not the same age as you. We change. You look back at photographs and your kids will laugh at your choice of clothes or your wallpaper you had in, in your house. We, we, we mature. We develop. We we. We grow an understanding that makes us cringe about previous choices and tastes that we have had in the past. When we go through an experience, it grants us a deeper understanding of other people who have gone through that experience. Because there are simply things that we have not experienced. We've never been through it, so we don't know. And so we change. We know that only God is immutable. He does not change. He is not subject to change. He's never going to be taken by surprise or learn something new. Tomorrow will not be a, a shock to him. And this this uh, influences how we interact. If only God is the one who does not change, then the next time you're in an argument and you say to someone, you never listen to me. Or the next time you're in an argument and someone says to you, 
you always leave your clothes on the floor. I'm just using like hypothetical things that I, I have heard, overheard arguments about, okay? You're never, on, you're never on time for anything. You always make me late. Jen Wilkin says about this, human beings don't always or never anything. We just aren't that consistent. We might frequently or fairly regularly or often or habitually, but we do not always or never. We're a jumble of inconsistencies, aren't we? We change. We aren't as consistent as we like to be. We set ourselves up as God. I always, you never. And so what's going on here is Nebuchadnezzar is about to be exposed as being someone who cannot stand over his own word or authority. We are foolish. The outcome of our words is never guaranteed. We face traffic jams and paper jams. I'm convinced that printers know when you're trying to print something under pressure. Like when, you, when you need it, it's like, this is the exact time that I'm going to choose to jam. When you really desperately need this thing right now, you're like, come on! Like, I'll have that report for you. Actually, no, I won't. The printer's jams or my Wi-Fi is down. Or we, we get stuck in all sorts of situations that are beyond our control that inhibit us from keeping our word, but, but God can keep his word. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that no matter what their circumstances were, no matter what was going on externally, God's character, God's nature, who he is, would not be altered by how their lives played out. And in this way, he's similar to the Apostle Paul who writes to the Philippians and says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've learned, I've learned a secret of being content in any and every circumstance, says Paul, whether flying business class or economy, whether things are excellent or awful. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. I can face everything. I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. God will still be God if the MRI shows something up. If my son doesn't get into the school that we put as his first choice, God will still be God. If the disharmony in my friendship group remains, God will still be God. Don't put your hope in circumstances is one of the things that we're discovering from this passage. Don't put your hope in circumstances because all of it are like those petals on a, on a cherry blossom tree. They wither and perish. Our circumstances come and go, but not God. God alone is worthy of worship because he doesn't change. All of my life, in every season, you are still God. I have a reason to sing. The hope of God's people was God. So we've seen the hope of God's people. The next thing we're gonna see is the, the humiliation of his persecutors. The humiliation of his persecutors. Verse 22 says this. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar's servants lost their lives trying to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
There's a warning in here, isn't there, about flying off the handle, overreacting. Turn that furnace up seven times, right? The biblical number of perfection. Let's get the furnace turned up to the maximum. Turn it up full volume. Let's get the heat up. Nebuchadnezzar was in a rage. And in his anger, he caused serious damage to the people who were serving him. And he's not the only one. If you cause damage to the people closest to you because you've flown off the handle, because you've reacted or overreacted to being overlooked, you've been impulsive, you've thought, I'll show you. Where do you see how hot this can go? And other people suffer the consequences. Nobody messes with me. Turn that furnace up. What ends up happening is humiliating. The fire kills the man who turned up the heat. It's worth hovering over a Bible passage like that or hovering over a text like that, thinking about your own life, thinking about when have I acted impulsively, who has been damaged by my anger, But it's worth hovering over it for another reason because this incident is not isolated in Scripture. This is what happens repeatedly in Scripture and we see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. I know David hit Goliath on the head with a stone, but do you know how Goliath actually died? What was it? Do you remember what it was that brought the end to Goliath's life? 1 Samuel 17, 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, Goliath's sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. Goliath died at the hands of his own sword that he was bringing to kill David. The thing that he thought, this is going to be the end of David, was actually the end of Goliath. And then in the book of Esther, you remember Haman, who, who was evil, insecure ruler, sound familiar? And he didn't like it that Mordecai, Jewish guy, wouldn't bow down to him. Sound familiar? And he, he was so racially motivated by hatred in this situation that he got King Xerxes to agree to a plan that would see all the Jews wiped out, all the Jews killed widespread murder but for Haman he was going to be hanged on gallows that were ridiculously high again an overreaction Mordecai is going to be hanged on these gallows that Haman has set up really high to make a statement to prove how powerful he is I am not to be defied and then in Esther chapter 7 and verse 10 we read they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. The weapon that was intended to be the end of Mordecai actually ended up being the end of Haman. We're getting glimpses of how God rescues his people. God is showing, here's what happens. People bring their weapons against the purposes of God and they end up being the very weapons that take their own lives. The very things that come against us, threaten to crush us, destroy us, wipe us out. Hey, I know, we'll throw Joseph in a pit and send him off to Egypt. That'll kill his dreams. (laughs) Let's see what becomes of your dreams now, Joseph. Become the means by which the dreams are fulfilled. And so at the cross, 
as the enemies of God nail Christ to the cross, thinking, what's going to become of your Messiah now? Savior, give me a break. He saved others. He can't even save himself. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the cross is spoken of this way. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus triumphed over his enemies at the cross. God humiliates the prosecutors by swallowing them up in the judgment that they had intended for others. They get swallowed up in it themselves. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego live, and the men who turn up the furnace heat die. You facing something difficult this morning? Is the heat on in a circumstance in your life thinking, this is going to be the end of me? Could it be? Could it be the means by which God is refining you, rescuing you, protecting you, redeeming you? Tim Keller says this, when God seems to be killing us, he's actually saving us. I love that. Don't say it lightly. I don't read it lightly in my own circumstances. I don't drop it into your circumstances lightly because I've been with you in some of the most difficult circumstances of your lives. And so I I hope you hear me in this. I'm not trying to downplay your suffering. I'm not trying to belittle it. I don't understand how it all works out or how we can trace God's hand in our suffering. But I see this pattern repeated in Scripture. And so I want to say to you, when it seems that God is killing us, could we contemplate that he's actually saving us? Is there an area in your life right now where you think, I just can't deal with it. God is not wanting to rob you of your joy. He's not wanting to crush your heart or spirit. There are things that may be turning the heat up to an unbearable level, but your eternal future is secure. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall trouble or hardship, famine, nakedness, shame? No, and in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We cannot be separated from the love of God. Yesterday, I was at a, a family birthday party and it was outside in my, my sister's garden. And to keep us warm, there was a fire pit in, in the garden and it was very small, but it was great and it served to be a bit of a feature. So we're all sort of around it, socially distanced, of course. But um, we were, were there and enjoying cake and, and coffee. It was really good. And then when we came away, our whole family smelt of this fire. It was in my clothes. It was you know, on my coat. And we hung them out in the washing line, other stuff put in the washing machine. And even as I showered this morning, I could smell the smoke coming out of my hair. And so I find it interesting that when you read Daniel chapter 3, it says, The fire had not any power over them. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. I was at a little fire pit and my hair reeked of it. My clothes were contaminated by it. And here in Daniel chapter 3, we get a picture of the completeness of God's care for his people in the fire. Like right in the fire. What we have here is evidence of God's complete, total, full care for his own people. Do you know what? At no point do you need to make a contribution towards your own forgiveness. You You don't need to make a lodgment in order to 
be in a right standing with God. You don't, you don't need to do anything to contribute to your own eternal security. Jesus paid it all. The very situations that seem to be the instruments of your defeat and, and downfall are the means by which God is refining you are the means by which his grace is coming to you. His grace is like water. It runs downhill. It meets us at the bottom. So we see the hope of, of the people. I can do all things. I can face it all through Christ who strengthens me. We see the humiliation of the prosecutors. They're disarmed. They're killed by the means, the thing that they're thinking. This will be the end of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's actually the end of them as a picture of the cross. And then finally, we see the help of his presence. There's a fourth man in the fire. God is with his people. He has not abandoned us, verse 25. No matter how much we want to be there for the people we love, we find it impossible to be there all the time. Just yesterday, uh, I left my youngest son, Robbie, to football in Carrick and we watched the first game of a couple of games that he was playing in. And then I was taking James to my other son, to Girdwood Barracks, to play a match there. And Rachel was on her way down to see the rest of Robbie's games, kind of a Saturday coordination. If some of you parents have been in this situation, you know. So I phoned Rachel on the way. I said, that's me leaving now. And she said, that's okay. I'm five minutes away. I'll, I'll see the rest of Robbie's football. In the in-between time, Robbie scored a goal. <laughs> One of the other dads squealed on me. Your dad's just away. And so he said to me, Dad, you missed my goal. And as a, as a parent, I want to be there for my kids all the time. Of course I do, and so do you. As good parents, you, but you can't. We can't be in two places at once. We can't be everywhere all the time. We cannot say to our children, even though we want to say to them, I'll always be here for you. It's not true. You can't fulfill that promise. We miss events because of other commitments. We, we cannot go on school trips with them. They do not want us with their friends. They want to enjoy time by themselves. We cannot be with them always. But God is not bound by any of our limitations. And so when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he means it. When Jesus commissions the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, and he says to them, surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. He can keep that promise. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, was astonished when he saw what was happening in the fire. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Some people want to say that this is a, a pre-incarnate Jesus. Okay, this is actually Jesus in the fire. And I understand why people want to say that. I don't think the Bible makes it clear that we can definitely say that it's Jesus. It might be, but God shows up. God is in the fire with us. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. See, the, the statue and the furnace that are supposed to are supposed to be intimidating and demonstrate Nebuchadnezzar's power turn out to be the thing that humiliates him turn out to be the thing that expose his weakness, the thing that are supposed to secure and reinforce his position of authority and power. 
are actually the means by which God demonstrates his power over these things and says, I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I set up kings and I take them from their position. Nebuchadnezzar does not set up anything of significance. May that be true of your circumstances and and mine, whatever it is that towers over you today, whatever it is that's turning up the heat in your circumstances to make you feel like this is an unbearable situation. May you know, Philippians 4, 13, I, I can do all things. That's not a guarantee that God's some kind of genie and will give you whatever you want, but he'll make you adequate for every single circumstance that comes your way. I can do all things. I can face all of this. I can, I can, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Hope of the people of God. I can do all things through Christ. The humiliation of the prosecutors. God disarms the rulers, puts them to open shame and the help of his presence. God will be with you, whatever it is, whatever the crisis is, you you don't have to face it alone. Just as we finish up this morning, I came across a poem which I'll use to conclude our time together uh, before we worship, a poem written by someone who had experienced illness and it became apparent that they were not gonna be healed even though they were a Christian, even though believing Christians had guaranteed them that they would be healed, they wrote this poem, and I found it really moving and helpful. I hope it's an encouragement to you. It's called, He Maketh No Mistake. My father's way may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache, but in my soul I'm glad to know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in him, he maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see, my eyesight's far too dim, but come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make through all the way Though dark to me, he made not one mistake. That is our confidence. That is our boast. Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll worship. Father in heaven, truly there is no God like you. You're the God who leads us, the God who loves us, and the God who will be with us at all times. May we continue to know your presence here in this place and at home as we worship you in song. Come by your Holy Spirit and reassure us that you're the God who works all things for your good and for your glory. Amen.